Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People Podcast is a free program. Every single episode is available for free. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. So if you would like to support this program, you can do so at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod okay thank you very much okay you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Everybody, how's it going? What's going on? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and I'm really excited about today's show. Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi is the guest. She has a new novel out. It's called Call Me Zebra. It's available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Call Me Zebra by Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi. How's that for a name, by the way? I feel like that kind of name, it's like you're destined for greatness. Vanderfleet is Dutch for of the fleet, meaning like of the fleet of ships, because the Dutch are a seafaring people, you, you would assume, right? So I don't know, it just feels like a powerful name. I feel, ha- I feel like my name is inferior. But then again, I feel like my name is inferior to just about every name. The only name that's inferior to Brad is uh, Chad. Like I feel like Brad is like a hair better than Chad. Though I could, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi. Coming up in just a moment. I don't have that much to talk about. Uh, you know, the other day, Sunday, Oscar Sunday, that just happened. Uh, my wife goes out every year, it seems like, to watch the Oscars. I, I don't care. I used to care. I don't care. I worry that I don't care anymore. I'm not proud of the fact that I don't care, or I don't want to be proud of the fact that I don't care, because there is some of that. You know, you can start to feel smug about the fact that you don't care about the stuff that everybody seems to care about. So I don't want to be like that. I'm just saying that I don't care in the way that I used to care, and I worry that it might be part of some broader anhedonia. Like, has something died in me? I haven't seen any of these movies. I don't care that I haven't seen any of these movies. Like I'm famous for being in, you know, like getting into bed at night and I'll, I'll like, uh, grab the remote control and I'll open up Netflix and I'll look at the, like in, you know, endless, endless options. There's so many options, which I think is part of the problem. And what I will do kind of ritualistically is complain about 
how poorly uh, curated Netflix seems to be. It's just like this giant dump of content, 95% of which I have zero interest in. I don't know how to find anything. And I just sit there and I say the same thing every time to my wife. I'm like, they need a, they need a better algorithm. We got to figure this out. I don't like any of this stuff. I don't want to watch anything. And so what will happen, and I do this a lot, is that I will sit there for like an hour just scrolling through Netflix, complaining, and then eventually I'll fall asleep with the remote control in my hand. So, uh, yeah, so Oscar Sunday, like during the day, what did I do? I took Twiggy, the uh, puppy, to puppy kindergarten. We worked on, uh, like you kind of work on one command a week. And like this week it was like, get in your bed. She did pretty well. And then, uh, I came home or no, this was, this was the thing I needed to go to puppy kindergarten. But, uh, when I got in the car in the driveway, it turned out the battery was dead. Like, I guess the lights had been left on or like the low beams or, you know what I'm talking about. And I had to call AAA later that day and get it jumped. It turned out to be fine, but the battery had died which was a pain in the ass. So I had to take an Uber to puppy kindergarten. I brought my daughter. Like that's something that she and I do together. And then, uh, later that day, my wife goes out uh, to her friend's house to watch the Oscars. I have the kids. It's sort of chaotic. I'm dealing with everything and, uh, making dinner, trying to make sure the dog doesn't pee in the house. I bathing the kids. I'm putting them to bed. My daughter, uh, who is seven was up latest. You know, my, my two year old goes to bed first and so it got to be about 8.30, and uh, I, went to, I went to put my daughter to bed. Like, I was just about to, you know, tuck her in, and uh, the lights in our, ho- uh, our house went out. Like, the power goes out in our house. So already, I've had to get the car jumped, and now, like, the power in my, in my uh, house is out. And so my first thought is that, oh, you know, like, what's going on? Like, the, like is there a, uh, something like Oscars related? Has there been an attack? Is this Vladimir Putin? Am I paranoid? And then I walked outside and I looked to the north and the house next door to me was fine. The lights were on. And so suddenly I got panicked. I was like, oh my God, is it just our house? Is it just my house? Did something like specifically happen? Uh, but it turned out to the south of me, the lights were out. It was just something, you know, something to do with the grid. So, uh, you know, then I was in the dark with my daughter and she gets a little nervous. She's, you know, cause like kids get scared of the dark. We have flashlights out. I entertained her by making shadow puppets. We ended up having like shadow puppet theater. She wanted to stay awake until her mom got home. Then her mom got home and her mom had had like, I think probably an extra glass of wine or two watching the Oscars. It was late. The lights were, you know, did not go back on. Our power did not go back on for uh, several hours. And the workers from Department of Water and Power to their credit, came out right away. They sent the crew out right away to get the power going, but it took them several hours to restore it. And these guys care nothing for the fact that you're trying to sleep. They're out in the back, like dealing with the uh, power lines and so on. And they're shouting at each other. We can hear them. And it turned out that they woke up my son. And so then I had to go get him and he's in bed with us. And then he's wide awake and he wants to sing. I was just up all night. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Just trying to relate some kind of story. There's no point to this other than to tell you that I was exhausted and I didn't see the Oscars and I worry that I don't care. Or maybe it's good that I don't care, but I don't want to be proud of it. Or maybe it just, I should just be neutral about the fact that I don't give a shit. It's fine.
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi is my guest. Back in 2015, she was named one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35 honorees for her debut book, Fra Keeler. She has now published a follow-up novel. It's called Call Me Zebra. It is the official March selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It's available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Very pleased to have Azarine here on the podcast for the first time. Here she is, folks. This is Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi. I'm a very slow reader, but I tend to read a lot and move between books and sort of think about them for a long time. Do you uh, do you watch TV? Like, I do. You, you, do you do frivolous things? I do frivolous things. I watch television. But you also like read Cervantes and you know like yeah. Borges and all that stuff. The Cervantes is actually a really fun novel. I think it sort of has that intimidating scale because it's really long and it's been talked about historically and canonized, but it's actually a really delightful novel and kind of a page turner and laugh out loud funny. And I think that's, you know, something people don't usually know about. It was an inspiration for you? It was, yeah, in yeah. writing this book, for sure. And you live this sort of, uh, I mean, you're, you uh, have an international background, but you sort of, you live, I think your bio says in Indiana, but you also spend time in Florence? Yeah, I do. Before moving to Indiana, I was living in Florence with my husband. And before that, we were in Spain, uh, sort of in Barcelona on the outskirts in Girona. And yeah, so we tend to go back as much as we can, mainly in the summers. That sounds good. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's a weird split, though, like Florence and South Bend. Yeah, it's a pretty radical change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Florence is sort of like an outdoor museum and... South Bend has really grown on me. It's really changed over the last few years. It's kind of a revival, Rust Belt city. But when I got there initially, it was really bleak. And Is there a revival yeah. going on in the Rust Belt? I don't know about the Rust Belt in general, but in South Bend, there's definitely been a big change, uh, probably because so many people are coming back to small towns and, you know, opening breweries and things always get buying better cheap real estate when there are breweries around <laughs> buying cheap real estate. That's right. So how did you wind up there? I got the job, uh, at the university of Notre Dame. Yeah. Back in 2012. And we just kind of moved, moved back from, from Europe. And you're not Catholic. I am not Catholic. You don't ha I thought they would like, you don't have to be Catholic to teach at Notre Dame. No, you don't. Is that a dumb question? I feel no, like, no, that's a legitimate question. Yeah. I feel like they would probably, <laughs> but they would probably air like they would probably have uh, a preference for Catholics, right? 
well, there's a date, there's a statistic that they have to meet, I think, in terms of the faculty and the students. So I think it's 50% of the faculty has to be Catholic. And, um, but no, you know, no, they, it's sort of their, their faculty who are from all over and, you know. Yeah. Okay. So you, like the, the character in your book, and you have some things in common. So you're working from your own life, right? In, in some ways, yeah. Okay. So tell me about, let's just go back to childhood. Like where did you begin and then how did you wind up in the States? Like let's give people sort of a broad brushstroke picture of mm-hmm. uh, your life and the path that you've taken. Well, I wish it were a linear story that I could iron out for you in, in just a 60-second thing. But really, we moved around a lot and often would kind of um, leave a place and then go back to it months or years later. So kind of broadly speaking, I grew up in the Middle East, in Tehran, in the Emirates, in Dubai, in Sharjah. And then um, we spent some time in Scotland, though I don't remember much, and in Singapore, and then I moved. Um, How old were you? Like you're in Scotland at what age? Scotland, I was a toddler, so I don't remember much of it. And in the Emirates, I was, I think it was first grade. So I do have lots of uh, good memories of being there. And my father lived there sort of back and forth. Later on, I got to visit uh, Dubai as a teenager and, and sort of in my 20s again, and it's just completely different from what I remember it as a child. Yeah, Dubai's changed a lot. A lot, a lot. So I sort of remember it being this vast open landscape, and now it sort of has this very Vegas quality. Right. You know, it's, it's amazing different. the amount of money they've spent. Yeah. Like it's a kind of spare no expense. Like we're going to build it like a ski mountain in a mall. Right. Like and I went and saw the ski mountain. It's kind of bizarre. Did you ski? No, oh. I'm always the spectator. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm not going to ski in a mall. No, it was more entertaining to watch people ski inside of a glass cage. Like wearing know? like uh, Dolce & Gabbana. Yeah, probably. Right? And, you know, yeah, really like dressed up for the snow. But really it was 110 degrees outside. That's so weird. It was bizarre. Okay, so Scotland, the Emirates. Yeah, and then Sp- Spain was a big point of reference because my family um, moved there after the revolution in Tehran, and that was kind of a place that we always returned to between transitional phases. And um, it was also like a very remote area of Spain, sort of on, on the coast in Valencia. And where else did we live? In L.A., briefly. Reno, Nevada. Tarangulus is what they call it. Tarangulus, yeah. yeah. And then... You lived in Reno? I lived in Reno, yeah. When we first came back to the States to kind of put down roots here, we landed in Reno, Nevada, and it was... Why did you land in Reno? Kind of a tragic landing. Um, We landed there because my mom had spent some time in India a couple years before that, at an ashram and had met a Persian family there that she became very close to and they're still great friends and they lived in Reno and so you know you sort of when you're drifting around the world you gravitate to where you have anchors and family friends so they were kind of the reason why we moved out there and they were a great source of support but Reno was just so your mom lived on an ashram she didn't live at an ashram. She just sort of went to an ashram for... Like for a retreat. A retreat. What, like a Hindu or a Buddhist or what is it? Um, it was the Sai Baba ashram. 
in oh, India. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, do you know about Sai Baba? Yeah, but yeah. I'm trying to figure out where because I'm sort of Buddhist, or you know, like I'm fascinated by that. And I think I read a book by Michelle Goldberg about like the history of yoga. Mm. Maybe that was it. I'm, I don't I, know it. This is another thing. I think were we talking on the air before? But it was about uh, how well read you are. Just whatever we were just talking about. I think we were on air. Yeah, I can't remember anything. <laughs> I can't remember what I read. I can't remember what just happened. But I read this book and liked it, and it was all about. Oh God, I want to say it was the Michelle Goldberg History of Yoga book, and what's the, what is that like mystical, religious movement founded by that lady in New York? like that old woman and she was sort of like a gypsy the one where they don't eat and they just feed on light maybe i don't know i don't know which it was one like a blend about. of all the worlds you know it was kind of like this movement where it was like we're going to blend all the world's religions there's really only one you know anyway well, that's interesting i don't know anything I'm, about it I'm, you probably do i'm just paraphrasing it so badly <laughs> no, <laughs> I've no. led you so far afield so your mom goes to sai baba's uh, ashram mm -hmm. and uh sai baba is like uh like you know genuinely like magical at least as i've i've read depictions if i'm thinking of the same thing like capable of like you know touching people and like knowing who they are and, like, and healing them yeah and, that's that's the narrative i don't really know much about sai baba myself i mean i used to kind of go with her to meditate and you know do things that you do with your mom as a child but I, you know, I never, I went, to I the went mall yeah. with my mom. <laughs> well, I did that too. I also went to the mall <laughs> and I actually went to India when in my twenties and didn't really go to Sai Baba's ashram. It just wasn't something I was interested in. I sort of. Sai Baba's dead, right? He's dead now. Yeah. He okay. passed away. Yeah. But that's so, but the, the ashram lives on. The ashram lives on. Yeah. I think it's pretty healthy and the community is, you know, carrying on his legacy in a way. But again, it's not something I'm actually invested in and my mom isn't either. It was just sort of a moment in her life and went to the ashram. Yeah, she went to the ashram. We were in Singapore with my dad and we were, you know, doing fun things like doing our laundry in the bathtub and mixing it up with with a broom. I just remember doing things like that, playing with marbles and my mom was meditating and cool. then she came back. <laughs> See, this is the thing like you've had, I mean, it's a difficult childhood in a lot of ways because you guys were sort of on the move all the time, right? Uprooted from the land of your birth and mm -hmm. difficult circumstances. Um, but you had this international childhood and this mix of experiences. That's a hell of an education mm -hmm. experientially. That's mm -hmm. hard for I think most people to fathom, it's very unique. Like, do you feel grateful for that? Like now, I mean, is it, is there gratitude? Is that the wrong word for such a, you know, it's, it's difficult circumstances, but it's also, I don't know. I find myself sort of envying the ability, you know, the ability yeah. to sort of mix into all these different places and draw on these experiences. And I Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I don't know if grateful is the right word. I'm definitely grateful for having seen so much, you know, things that were extraordinary, difficult to witness or very painful to experience. Like, and also like what? really joyful. I mean, 
so many things. For, for one thing, I'm actually a U. I was born in the U.S. and but we left pretty immediately. So I kind of returned to the country as an immigrant slash citizen, which is already a very strange experience. And growing up um, in Tehran, for example, there were things about uh, just being a woman in that culture and being a body that was policed or surveilled heavily and navigating my family's cultural legacy uh, before the revolution, while also feeling really sympathetic to the way that the country was trying to rebuild its own identity and establish a sense of autonomy in the world, which I think is a worthwhile project, given the kind of, you know, cultural and ideological imperialism that we live in. So that was challenging, um, sort of seeing some things eye to eye with my family and others disagreeing with them completely. And then coming back to the States as as immigrants, we had a lot of really challenging experiences, you know, that are, I guess, in some ways pretty typical. So, yeah. Just assimilating. Well... I don't know if I've really assimilated. I don't really believe in, in the narrative of assimilation entirely. Okay. I think that you sort of find aspects of the culture that you can adapt or adopt and ways to also push back against the ways that the culture tries to act on you and create narratives for you that could pigeonhole you in really negative ways or at least hinder your progress. So I think it's sort of a learning to become an integrated person and learning to become an adult. You sort of figure out which needs of yours can be met by a certain, you know, aspect of a culture and which ones are always going to be frustrated by it and kind of make your peace with that and choose your battles wisely. And, and in terms of like having a sense of uh, your own identity, like what, what do you can, do you consider yourself Iranian? Do you consider yourself American? Like, do you have, do you consider yourself such things? Like, that's a really great question. I consider myself in some ways as a transnational person who's sort of from nowhere. And at the same time, you know, I was just talking to my uh, editor about this, that in the process of writing the book, I was able to lay claim to these places in my own really idiosyncratic way. And I feel I can very comfortably say I'm from all of those places at the same time. And there, there are a lot of contradictions between these cultures, sort of going from Iran to Spain and then from Spain to the States. There are ways in which you can't consolidate the stories. You can't consolidate parts of your identity, right? And there are always going to be these kinds of fissures and gaps. And at some point, it's just, you know, like playing Tetris. Not all the pieces are going to land squarely, but that's the picture and that's fine. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, it... it uh trying to find the right words like i feel like i feel like it would be hard like having moved around as much as you have um to pick like like, mm-hmm. like you know what i'm saying having lived in all these places just like you say you can you can comfortably say i feel like i'm from all of these places and mm-hmm. so then in a way you're not from anywhere yeah you know and that's true i mean I always feel like I'm on the outside looking in, and that's true whether I'm in Spain and I don't really get the chance to go back to Iran. So that's a very interesting sort of obstacle that 
probably in many ways distorts my relationship to that space and those memories and feeds a lot of nostalgia for when, when's for the last time Iran. you were in Iran I was I think 12 when we left and I haven't been back since and you can't go back like you're like can't you get like a you have to apply for some I could visa. get sponsored to go back but given what I do it's you know a risk that I'm not necessarily willing to take at this moment sure yeah uh, how many languages do you speak hmm <laughs> I speak, let's see, five-ish. 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 But like fluent in English. Fluent in English, Farsi conversational. Farsi is a very complex language. So I can, I can say, you know, conversationally, I have native fluency and Spanish and then Italian and then Catalan, which I was pretty good at and is always in my ear, but I haven't been practicing it the last few years. So it's That's sort good, of though. atrophying. Five's good. You think? You should feel comfortable with five. I should let Catalan <laughs> just go now. <laughs> just, yeah, just cross that one off. You're making me feel bad about myself. <laughs> I was considering learning Dutch since, you know, that's also part of my buried identity. <laughs> okay. So yeah, Vanderf Vanderfleet. Right. Where is that? Where, where, tell me about that. That's Dutch. I don't know exactly from what part of Holland and that, um, yeah, my, my dad is, he, he comes from a family of Dutch sort of sea captain types who all, they all went off to sea at a pretty young age, but he actually, his mother is Scottish, his father is Dutch, and he grew up in the East End of London. And then at 14, he didn't necessarily know his father very well, but he decided to go off to sea as well. And like, that's and what he did. It's you, in his blood. Have yeah. you ever had the urge to go off to sea? Yeah, I do. I, what, you know, when I'm looking at the ocean, I feel this huge sort of gravitational pull, but it, I think writing does that for me. Ah. It's kind of like allowing myself to just be at sea. When I, like, I'm, I was just thinking like when I'm staring at the ocean here in Los Angeles, like off the coast, you know, I'm always just like, it's filthy. There's a lot of stuff in there. It's like, makes me sad. Like, you know, like, I'm, I'm like really my, sad, my kids yeah. are waiting and I'm like, is there oil? Like, is yeah, there petrochemicals? I, absolutely. I think about that so often living in Indiana. I love the lake, Lake Michigan, but then I also really worry because there's all these nuclear plants and chemical plants all over there. Have you been to the, the dunes up in like, Port yeah. was it Portage, Indiana? Where is it? I forget. There are dunes all over. Yeah. In Portage, there are the Warren dunes, which are just gorgeous. I oh. mean, spectacular. And then the farther up you go in Michigan, the, the more pristine and bluer the water I'm going up there this summer. Oh, that should be great. A bit, like yeah. a big family vacation. Nice. We're going to go up like way north in Michigan. Nice. I'm excited That's great. about it. Yeah. It's good. Are, are you going to picture rock or? No, I forget. It's like up in like near Traverse City or something. Okay. But yeah, I, I haven't uh, been to Traverse City, but I hear good things. I like the, the upper Midwest in summer. It is beautiful. It's very charming. And the landscape actually really reminds me of the Caspian growing up in the north as a child in Iran. So I sort of am, am you know, enamored it, by it because it's, it it evokes something. yeah, it evokes something for me. Just that kind of humongous inland sea. It's, it has its magic. That's great. And yeah. so you so your dad's Dutch, right? He sets off to, he goes off to sea. What does that mean? That means he actually went to nautical school and 
you know, was on dry land probably once a year for a couple of weeks for the next 17 years of his life or so. And yeah. when does he, when does he meet your mom? He met my mom in the seventies in Tehran. He, he got tuberculosis at some point cause he was working for the British India steam navigation company and he wasn't allowed to be on ships in the same way because, you know, they're always in close quarters. And once you have yeah. TB, oh, blah, right. blah, blah. so yeah, basically he, uh, he started to kind of work on dry land, but always in relation to, you know, ships, offshore drilling, whatever it was he could do to be near the water. And that's how he ended up in Tehran. He was kind of launching his own business but of course the revolution happened it'll put a damper on launching a business right yeah and he was actually i think not allowed out of the country for a good six to eight months and questioned often and eventually was let go but and he had met your mom by that point yeah they had already met and so and you said earlier that you were born in the states i was born in the states so you were conceived in tehran no, because they left, I think it was in 79 that they left. Okay. And I was born in 83. Okay. So you were not conceived in Toronto. I don't know where I was conceived. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they don't know uh, either. Yeah, <laughs> in some country, somewhere. Somewhere. Uh, okay. In so transit. Th- but then you, they they happened to be, like, was it was it on purpose that they came to the States to, to have you so that you could be an American citizen? Or was it just like they happened to be here when you were, I mean... No, no, that that's actually true. My mom was uh, very, very smart. She she came here and gave birth to me. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Where? In LA. In LA. You're okay. Yeah. With what hospital? What hospital? Westlake something. All right. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. So you were born and then off you go, like back onto uh, your world travels. Yeah, I mean, I don't have, you know, memories that go that far back. <laughs> Although, do you know that there are people who say they have memories of their intrauterine experience? I don't believe that shit. Like, Salvador Dali believed that. and May, I mean, maybe, like, somewhere buried, but like that you can actually, like, call up? Beckett actually had those experiences, too. Did he? Yeah. Uh, and I was reading about this just two days ago, and I thought, ha ha, I found the other person in the world who believes this other than Delhi. <laughs> Do you have, you don't have any, I, no. I don't have interview, no, no. The, I can uh, barely remember my <laughs> infancy. The uh, the earliest memory I have, and like the thing about this though is that memory is so tricky, but I, like I've actually, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people, it's a natural thing to ask yourself, like what's my earliest memory? Earliest memory that I think I recall having is a nightmare about the Incredible Hulk. Hmm. at a house that we lived in up in uh, San Francisco when I was like in the seventies and the, you know, as a kid. And I remember the incredible Hulk chasing me through a forest. And then there were these witches and they were going to cook me in a pot. And then I remember my mom and I in like a yellow kitchen in the middle of the night. Cause I think I woke up crying. Nice. And I remember my mom making me like a, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That wasn't part of the dream. That was, that was of, for real. That was the reality. Yeah. And like, that's what I tell myself. And then I'm like, did I just make that up? Is this some narrative that I've created? Or like maybe, maybe like bits of it are true? That yellow kitchen sounds kind of horrifying. It was. Yeah. And that I, could give rise to some nightmares. I also remember eating dry dog food in somebody's garage out of a bag and getting in trouble. <laughs> That's real too. Yeah. I told you I wasn't that smart. <laughs> you have your bag of treats now <laughs> yeah, right? around your belt. Yeah, Azarine has seen my... Uh, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you know that I have a... Uh, 
training holster for my new puppy and she saw it and you could re-experience that yeah delightful food it's been uh it's been my dog is sort of picky with food like most dogs you would think they just eat anything but she's only she only likes these dried like patties it's it's very complicated she's discerning she's discerning uh what's your earliest memory you know i have no idea because i don't trust my memories at all how do you know that they're not just sort of photographs that you've seen that you've animated retroactively yeah i don't know i mean i do remember being at i don't know two or something in scotland and hanging off of our giant german shepherd and having him just carry me around you had a german shepherd in scotland yeah, but see, this is one of those memories where how do I know it's my my memory? Because my father used to love telling me this story about how I was just always hanging on him and he was giving me rides around the house. What, did he go with you when you left Scotland? No, I think they would just sort of... Find a new find, home? Yeah, find new places to give the dogs away to, or I don't know. That, was that sad for you as a child? It was awful. You have to be like, awful. say goodbye to the dog. Yeah. Off we go to, uh, you know, Singapore. Yeah, it was awful. Um, I'm very attached to my dogs now and I treat them really well. I wouldn't abandon them for the world, but do you have siblings? I do. How many? I have one brother and I also have three half, well, two half sisters and one half brother. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're all in England. Okay. So your father married another woman or was with another woman? Is that right? He was married before he married my mom. Okay. Yeah. This is the sea captain. That's the sea captain life, right? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Are you in touch with these uh, half-brothers or half-siblings? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we are. I have a buddy. uh, He was on on the holiday episode of this show, but he found out late in life. I mean, I shouldn't, I don't even know if I should be telling his story, but... He found out late in life that he had been born via a sperm donor Mm. and uh, like, you know, then started to pursue like, you know, who are my siblings? Like every, uh, you know, every time I see him, he's like, just found out I have another sister. Wow. He's got like sibling, like half, you know. Does he get in touch with them? Yeah. And how do they respond? They like, we'll have lunch or whatever if they're around or he'll like have a phone call. Yeah. But he's got a lot. That sounds nice though. Yeah. It's also like, I mean, can you imagine suddenly realizing you've got like, like, 15 or 16 half siblings that you didn't even know about. Yeah. I can't imagine that. You can, <laughs> <laughs> you're, like, you're like, that sounds fairly you know, possible in my field of experience. <laughs> Anything uh, is possible. So, okay. So you're growing up. It sounds like you have a fairly, you had a fairly sophisticated eccentric mom. I don't know. Mom, like my mom, like the, the fact that your mom went to an ashram with Sai Baba, like immediately puts her in like, you know, this like, uh, space in my imagination, <laughs> imagining she was well-read that she was, you know, like, where do you get it from your literary bent? I have no idea where I get it from. I didn't really grow up in a house where people were reading books all the time that, and I was sort of an anomaly in that way. I don't think they quite knew what to do with me. Cause my head was always stuck in a book and 
my grandmother actually would be really worried. She was both intrigued by my tendencies, but also concerned that that wasn't the right kind of social capital that would allow me to thrive. Of course, in her world order, she was right, but you know, the world's changed. Where was grandma? Was she traveling? Was she moving? She would, she would come and, you know, live with us for extended periods of time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, she always went back to Iran and a lot of my love for Iran also is something I shared with her, but you know, kind of four or five months out of the year she was with us yeah that's cool yeah it was lovely yeah Yeah. so was it a coping mechanism i I would imagine if you're going from school to school not only school to school but culture to culture like it's a lot for anybody to have Mm -hmm. to cope with and it's a making friends learning Mm -hmm. the ropes like it would seems like sort of natural that you would turn to a book and be like okay well i can yeah i think i started to I mean, I, I don't know that I was such an avid reader as a very, very young child, but I was really observant and was always writing things down and sort of scrutinizing in some ways. You know, I sort of had to learn to read cultures and decode cultures pretty quickly. So I had to be alert. That's for sure. And then the reading really happened in Orange County because... I really didn't like living there at all. Where in Orange County? In Irvine. (laughs) Yeah, I just drove past my old high school. It was really strange because nothing has changed. Everything's exactly the same. What's your high school? What high school did you go to in Irvine? Uni. Uni, okay. Yeah, they have, you know, the swimming pool where I used to train after school and you were a competitive swimmer. Yeah, I was a competitive swimmer and everything's just exactly as it was. Well, Irvine is a planned community. Yeah, it's so like, it was strange last night. I drove from LAX back to Orange County to stay with a friend. And, you know, I was really tired. It was probably one o'clock in the morning and going through all the lights, Culver. And it just felt like I was in a Nabokovian dream. You know, like I had just reentered this landscape and nothing had changed. But I wasn't the same person and nobody knew. It was really a strange experience. Yeah, usually things do change, I find. Yeah, like and I'm sure if I hung around, I would realize that, in fact, things have changed, but there's I'm just going to let that surface be. It's like I'm a, not going <laughs> to dig. <laughs> there's now a tender greens at the strip mall. That's about like the only thing that's changed. I feel like there's like little cosmetic changes. Yeah, maybe. But the, there's the same Carl's Jr. I used to walk to to get a burger and the same Rite Aid. And I don't know. It's strange. So you, okay. So you were in Orange County in high school. Uh, you didn't like it there. No. And you're just reading. Yeah. And I'm realizing now as I talk about it, that it kind of feels so static that it feels like this space outside of history, if you know what I mean. It's just kind of like this parallel universe. Orange County is strange. It's really weird. I love the coast, you know. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's probably some of the more beautiful beaches. And I used to ditch math class to go sit on the coast and hang out by myself. What was your beach? It was, I just wrote about this. Corona? Corona del Mar. Uh Yeah. Yeah. And it was always really quiet. Yeah. I loved it. It's not, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's so gorgeous. And and the thing too is that I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, speak too broadly about it because it's a big place. There's a lot of people there and it's, I think it's grown more. Yeah. It's grown in terms of size, but it's also grown in terms of diversity and it is really diverse actually. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's not easy to like totally pigeonhole it, but there is something like the, the vibe that I get when I'm down there is that it feels, it feels like sort of like, uh, 
like there's this like like real happy like almost manic happy energy where it's like the weather's perfect yes. you know we're affluent and we've got like when we love it's jesus a- and like you know everyone like, well, like you can't possibly be unhappy it's pleasantville yeah it's yeah pleasantville. i actually felt very depressed there i mean i remember that was the first time i actually realized that i was depressed and like like clinically depressed i don't know if it was clinically depressed i was highly functional you know i was yeah. going you know you weren't started... like in, you were like i can't get out of bed no no yeah. but i stopped talking <laughs> It's always a sign. Yeah. I stopped talking and I kind of withdrew and I had these, I had a bird. Oh, that's so strange. So that showed up in your book. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so what was this bird? Uh, I had, I had a bird. Um, it was a cockatoo, but a little, little one cockatiel. Yeah. I just had to make it bigger in the book. And she, you know, she was great. She was really fond of paper. She would chew on my books. But it, like, was this a bird that you were like out in public with, like, like on mm. your shoulder? Or, like... Well, she would hang out on my shoulder inside the house. Inside but the house. No, yeah. But you weren't like the girl in public with a bird. No. Okay. No. <laughs> Not yet. I had enough <laughs> strangeness to mitigate. <laughs> but sometimes you'll be like, oh, there's the girl with like the ferret, or there's the guy with the uh, yeah. snake around his neck, or the and... the guy with the Vietnamese pig. Yeah. 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 There's that, always those. There's always those people. I wasn't one of those people. But you were you were a good student. I was a good student. So straight A's. Except for sort math. of, except for that year when I was really depressed, then I started getting bees. Okay. Did you do drugs in high school? Did you rebel? Did you have like a? F- I know I didn't do drugs. I I didn't. I've never been like drugs have never been an appeal for me at all. My mind is sort of. I have such a wild imagination. I don't know why I would introduce another variable, but I rebelled by refusing to change my clothes and this made my mother crazy so i had (laughs) i had this plaid shirt that i would wear Uh every single day and these corduroy overalls that i refused to buckle i just kind of let them hang open and i wore that outfit for i don't know six months but if it was really warm i had a pair of neon green shorts (laughs) that i would wear with the plaid shirt did you have friends i had lots of friends you did you were popular well, I don't know if I was popular, but I had my friends. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just, you know, from all over. Did they wear the same thing every day too? Like, was it was it a thing or was it your thing? No, this was my thing. Okay. This was just between my mother and I. I but see, I sort of get that because I had like favorite outfits. I still, I mean, this, this is my costume. I'm like, because I think some people, and I had a conversation with, uh, this was a while ago, like years ago, but it was like Sheila Hetty, Heidi Julevitz, and Leanne Shapton wrote a book about like fashion. Oh yeah, I know that book. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I had all three of them uh, in our old apartment and we were sitting down talking about this and I always have felt like a little sheepish about how like, I just don't want to think about it. I just want to but put is on that a con- costume or is it an outfit? Or like a uniform, I think is the way Sheila put yeah, it. Oh yeah, a uniform. She's like, That's, That's what like, I meant. Like, I think she, they had like somehow categorized people's approach to fashion and like some people it's like it's like a uniform you put it yeah. on and like that's like you're you know made me feel a little better about myself but yeah you don't have to think about it which right. is pretty liberating so is that i guess that's the question that i'm driving at was that what was motivating you to wear the same outfit every day or was it like just like a malaise like i think it was a malaise but i mean i guess the most s- simplistic reading of it is 
to say, well, there was so much change happening. And that was kind of my way of digging my heels in and saying, that's enough, you enough. know? So what was the change that was happening? Like, you well, mean just like, the moving around uh, constantly, you know, it was, yeah, yeah, it was too much. How <laughs> long were you in Orange County? Was that all of high school? No, we, well, I first came with my mom in eighth grade and then we left again and then came back in part of ninth grade and then left again. And then, Where was your dad? That's oh, they, they were separated a oh, long they time did. ago. Okay. So yeah. you were with your mom, you came in eighth grade, then went back to. Then we went back to Spain, I think it was. And then briefly England, then we moved back. So like you're at schools for how many, like a stretch of like two or three months, like in a place. And then you bounce, like, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm trying to get a sense of time. Yeah. Sometimes it would be months. Sometimes it would be years. I mean, there would be sort of incidents that would instigate these moves. It wasn't just a kind of, you know, empty or sort of frivolous kind of moving. Um, and some of them would be really difficult things that would happen that would trigger a whole series of responses and, and then eventually in the 10th grade, we just kind of stayed in Orange County and did you, were you like, Hey, I want to go to school and like stay put or yeah, I'm not a big fan of school. I, I didn't really care about school. I just sort of, yeah, a lot of the moving had, you're to, a lot like zebra yeah. zebra is a yeah. lot of you. Yeah, there is a, there are a lot of autobiographical dimensions. I mean, I, I found school to really be a project of dumbing people down for the most part and controlling people's minds genuinely. I mean, I think this happens in every culture in different ways. And there's the kinds of like revisionist theories of history that happen in the States. So I remember being in history class here in Orange County and our teacher thought it was really funny that he had taken our history test and gotten a C on it himself. And was, Did you hear my stomach, by the way? I, I, no, but I hope that's a reaction to what I'm saying, because it was just mortifying. I mean, this is sort of yeah. American history, first of all, like divorced from world history. You, you had to be an AP student to be able to access like European history classes. And not to mention there was no like Middle Eastern history class or anything like that. But yeah, it was just a kind of really frivolous... Um, busy work kind of education that it was, you know, easy enough to get A's. You just show up and easy enough for you. Not everybody can do that. Sure. I understand. That's probably true, but a lot of it was really busy work. Did I you, don't remember having to think very much. Did you, and you talk about like, cause I, I totally get it. I'm, I was, when, as you were saying that I was thinking back to like my junior high history teacher, he was like popular Right. This guy was popular too. And that was part of the rhetoric. It was, he was trying to be in with the cool kids, which like, yeah. And he you was, know. you know, he was like this guy who was like, he had been a good basketball player, which was big in Indiana. Right. And he was, he had some charisma. He was sort of fun, but I remember he did these things in front of class called the, he'd call them the lessons of history. Like <laughs> and, and, and he was also like, I think like hyper Christian right wing. And like, he would tell us that like, you know, war is unavoidable. And I guess like that is a lesson of history. There's always been war, but yeah, I just think back on it. And I'm like, that was weird. Yeah. And, uh, I don't and know the, if it was necessarily like responsible. Some of the things that we were taught. I think that's key, right? It's that sense of 
responsibility or a sense that the education actually matters and is shaping people and decisions that affect so many lives in the future, right? I mean, I'm so shocked every time someone comes up to me and asks me about Iran in ways as if it were just this sort of strip of desert where there are, you know, four people living under a tent and there are no seasons and, you know, the topography is all the same. I mean, it's probably one of the most like nuanced countries geographically, linguistically, like weather-wise. People right? don't have context. It's hard. Right. I mean, it's hard to have context if you've never been there, but you're certainly not going to find many Americans who have read about it in mm -hmm. fiction or nonfiction. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to get to. Um, but uh, I think, you know, we're also living in a country, and this is one of my big beefs with the States, where... Uh, a very small percentage of people even have a passport here. Mm -hmm. Like international travel and engaging with other cultures is not um, like a, a, an American value. A, there's no real priority placed on it. And it is, I think, in other countries, something that's celebrated and encouraged. Mm -hmm. And it's a big, it's a, I think it's a big issue. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, I mean, if you look at it from like the center out, there's also other issues that would probably have to take precedent over that. I mean, we didn't even learn about the legacy of racism in these classes, right? There's not even a curiosity, or I guess there's a kind of very convenient historical amnesia, right, that gets reproduced in the classroom. And so if there isn't a kind of reckoning with American history or what it means to be an American body, then how are people even going to get to that next phase where they can have an honest and genuine engagement with the relationship between this country and other countries and how that's informed it's, our history. It feels like history is one of the more poorly taught subjects mm -hmm. in American schools. Probably in all school and everywhere. Right. I mean, I think it's just, there's a kind of instability in, in historical narratives, right? It's, it has a fictional dimension to it. It's a version of fake news that's been happening for a long, long time. Right. And in order to really understand and piece together things, you have to read a lot. That's right. And you have to read a lot of different kinds of narratives and begin to kind of, do you ever read Gore Vidal? Like the United, mm -hmm. you said amnesia and he always used to say like, no, a, United I, States of that's amnesia. one of your favorite books. Is that right? How do you know that? I, I think I heard you say that in one of your I, I just, yeah. I, I found, because like to speak to exactly yeah. what you were just saying, um, I like history. And I think the more that you read about history, the more you realize the, this fictional component to right. it. that's like undergirding the whole thing. And I think that, I mean, and it's, it sort of feels tied to like media literacy and mm -hmm. to like in this current environment, especially mm -hmm. where you're trying to figure out like, well, where are the facts and like, what's the true picture? Like you, you have to get good at, uh, consuming a lot mm -hmm. of, uh, varying perspectives and then parsing it mm -hmm. <laughs> to try to stitch it. And, and whatever you, you land on is still going to be your subjective take, but I think the more informed you are, the closer to the truth it's going to get. And yeah. that, that's the way like history feels to me. It always feels like you can keep going. Like there's never, there's that's not like a terminal point you get to where you've reached, exactly. you've reached like the, Oh, I got it. Right. Uh, but I think that the way it's often delivered in our schools is like, well, these are the facts and the founding fathers. And mm -hmm. there's so much you don't know about this. Like you can just read like letters between uh, like Jefferson and Adams or whatever. And it's like, oh God, these guys, 
uh, they ran way deeper and were more complicated than mm-hmm. I was ever, it was ever conveyed to me in school. Yeah. And that's just one little tiny micro example. So, um, I don't know. Like I think about that a lot uh, with my own kids and like how I would want them to learn about this place. And I think that having a, a more honest reckoning is in order. <laughs> yeah. And also sort of, I think understanding how much we don't know and how much we don't understand there's no sort of like master narrative of history and there's no way you can master it right Mm. and i think that's part of allowing voices that have historically been omitted to kind of be be heard you know to make space for that because it's sort of in the fabric of all of those people speaking their stories specifically that you can weave together a, a sort of maybe more clear picture of what actually happened. Like people's history of the United States. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you're talking about the Howards and yeah, yeah, I think that's a good, good start. I mean, yeah. Those kinds of histories, right. Those kinds of histories, but also sort of oral histories. And, um, even if those histories have sort of historical or sort of fictional dimensions to them, like this is what I, this is the story I inherited from, from my grandmother or my great grandmother. And this is the narrative that was passed down in our family. And that then shapes your belief systems and how you operate in the world and how you receive or react to things. And okay. So so. let's go, let me, let me ask you a question. We, uh, like we were talking about your high school life in orange County and, uh, like juxtaposed against all the traveling that you did, that seems like such like, like there's like a poetry in the fact that you landed there, <laughs> like in Irvine after like being in Singapore and Spain and like, you know, doing all this Scotland and in the, the German most sterile sh- place. Yeah. Like exactly. <laughs> you wind up going to high school in like, you know, like Technicolor, uh, what's it called? Pleasantville. Yeah. Um, when you started to sense that school was, uh, not for you and you were sort of underwhelmed by it was this tendency towards being autodidactic, something that had been impressed upon you by your folks? Was this sort of like a family tradition was, I guess maybe it's going to be an all of all the above answer, but it's like, was it an outgrowth of the fact that you'd had all this experience living in different ports of call around the world? And then in terms of your reading life at that age, like had you read or were you reading things mm-hmm. that might have like pushed back against mm-hmm. what was being fed to you in class and you were just like uh uh-uh. uh like you, yeah uh, <laughs> yeah i mean i'll say i'll say two things one is that i actually did have two spectacular teachers at uni in ap classes that i managed to get into somehow um there were other forces that were sort of acting to keep me out. And despite having straight A's, I was told by a counselor not to apply to UCs or Ivy Leagues, which is fascinating. And I ended up applying anyway. Um, Where'd you go? I went to UC San Diego. Oh, you did? Okay. But there, it's hard to get into UC schools. It's really it's difficult. It's gotten increasingly it's difficult. It's really difficult. But I think it was just sort of part of the experience of being an other, right? Or not, I didn't know how to navigate the system. But anyway, I did have these two great teachers, Mrs. Watson, AP Art History, and my Shout AP- out to Mrs. Watson. Yes. <laughs> and I think it was Mrs. Jenkins for English. And we read Toni Morrison's Beloved. We read Waiting for Godot, Twelfth Night, The Sound and the Fury. And God. I'm surprised you can else? remember that. It was an incredible class. That's great. 
And then I kind of, uh, you know, I was working at Ruby's after school sure, and yeah. I was on the swim team and I was helping to take care of my mom. Ruby's so. where? Like in Irvine or on at the pier? Ruby's or? in Irvine. Sometimes oh. I would cover shifts on the pier. And I, you know, I just smelled like mustard all the time, mustard or chlorine. It was awful. And my mom wasn't doing well, so I was helping to take care of her a lot. And I used what to fall asleep. She just struggled a lot with, with you know, severe depression. And, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so basically, that was my life for a while. And I don't know, it just started... I was, yeah, I was falling asleep in class a lot, or I'd fall asleep in the parking lot in my car. And I had a good friend who would always come and wake me up. But when I would go home, you know, often if I couldn't sleep, I would read. And I started reading all the existentialists. And At like 16 years old? I was like 17, yeah. Okay. And that's a good age, I guess, for the, yeah. if, if you can die, if you, I mean, I don't think. I don't think I would have even had the first clue what they were talking about. Well, I didn't either. I didn't necessarily understand what they were writing. I had this kind of, because of the, sort of some of the trauma that I had to navigate at home or some of the sort of more difficult things that we were dealing with, with illness or crises and things, I had an intuitive sense of what was being, what the emotional discourse was behind that kind of philosophy. And I was really trying to understand, like, what is... How can you prove that you exist? And what is the meaning of life? And if you can't do that, what do you know? How do you know how to define the good life, right? And and so I observed observed a lot, and it changed me. But I didn't understand what I was you, reading. You observed a lot, meaning in your life up to no, that like point. No, like I absorbed a lot. Oh, absorbed uh, a lot. Absorbed a lot of that literature, and, and I it didn't matter if I was like conceptually understanding it or not. It made you, know, you think. It made me think, and it sort of sat there in the background, and w I could recall that information when I needed it and when my mind was kind of prepared for it. So that happened, but it wasn't because I was seeing other people read at home. Uh, I mean, it was we. My mom wasn't, you know, doing great, and it was kind of a quiet house. So it was sort of a way of filling the silence too. Sure. Yeah. And you're a curious person. Yeah, I, really, I, I mean, I think most yeah. writerly people, there's a strain of autodidacticism. Is that right. the way to put yeah. it? Like where you, you know, like once you realize you can get stuff from books and you start to have a little bit of mistrust for mm -hmm. what your elders are handing down, mm -hmm. you know, there's always a little bit of that. And then yeah. I think uh, if you're dealing with traumatic situations or difficult situations, like I, I always say like in times of flux and crisis, it's like, you're always like, that's when I read the most. Yeah, you you're know, trying to understand. Trying to understand. And uh, I'm amazed that you were like, it seems like you were pretty far out for uh, a 17-year-old and all without like any, like there was no drunks, just like swim team rubies and the existentialists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's it, rubies. <laughs> I guess that'll do it to anybody. But like, like the, the pressure, like the, the sense of pressure that I feel imagining being like an, you know, an expatriated teen in Irvine. Mm -hmm. I can get, I get it. Like it makes, it makes sense to me that that's what you did. Yeah. It just seemed like a really clinical place. I didn't understand what, and maybe that's what the attraction was for my mom. You know, finally this place where there's order, there's order, there's predictability, you know, I think that can be really addictive for some people. But it's not for me. I can understand the appeal for sure, you know. Yeah. I do. So, okay. So, and, and you're writing as a teen, like journaling? 
Yeah, I started writing then, journaling, and then I started writing a lot in college. So kind of right, right away when I got in as a freshman, I took a creative writing class. And then I didn't have an idea, this is what I wanted to do, or I'm going to become a writer. I didn't have any kind of grandiose ideas like that. It just sort of became the channel, and I couldn't stop. And Yeah. And do you have like a an understanding of, of why you do it. I mean, you love books, you love to read. That's sort of like a prerequisite, but is there something you're trying to figure out or express? Like it's some like as, as part of like an overarching project. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes I talk with writers who really do have a sense of like the larger project. And then there are other writers who, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not about difference in merit. It's just difference in approach. Mm-hmm. who might be like, you know, I just work book to book and, you know, the characters I'm going into the, this world and, you know, meeting these people. And then when the book is done, it's on to the next, but like, I don't feel that way at all. I, I don't, there isn't a sort of larger conceptual project, but there is a kind of emotional originating motive that's been there from the beginning and has just become more amplified, which is trying to understand not just my own life as a way of making space for the pain of others, but I think for me, literature is a big tool for empathy and transformation and solace. And it's also something that I know, regardless of where I live or how isolated I felt at certain moments in my life, it's this beautiful thing that I can kind of communicate with readers and I really really genuinely love my readers and I feel that there is a conversation happening there that astonishes me sometimes and it sort of yeah helps me kind of regain my faith in community in some ways just like like the, okay there's my tribe like people like who get yeah what I'm doing yeah and also who are trying to understand maybe what it is that they're being asked to navigate in their own lives, but not just for their own sake. I mean, hopefully you do that kind of work with yourself so that you can be there in a bigger way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like you get said a lot, but like there is a, it does drive empathy to Mm -hmm. read about the lives of, um, especially people who are, who don't share your immediate experience Mm -hmm. in a really direct way. You know, Mm -hmm. it, it enlargens Enlargens. It it enlargens. Enlarges. Enlarges <laughs> a person. <laughs> um, are you an atheist? Am I an atheist? Gosh, no. I don't know what I am. That's an ongoing conversation for me. Me too. I talk about it in this show pretty much every mm-hmm. episode. I'm always curious, like, because to me, uh, I feel like everybody who's dealing with words, whether you're writing a memoir or you're writing a novel or a collection of stories or whatever, or poetry, whatever mm-hmm. it is, you're sort of grappling, you're grappling with meaning, mm-hmm. you're grappling with existence, you're grappling with human suffering. And so I'm, you know, I'm always w- wondering like, what are, you know, what's the deeper approach or is there some sort of systematized, um, is that the right word? <laughs> I keep doing this systematized, right? Well, I don't know what you're saying. Like, like religion, like there, you know, there's a system, right. Um, or a systematic approach that I people see. might fall back on, but I don't know. I guess I'm just always wondering like if there's any of that or if, uh, 
There's nothing. I don't know. I don't know if there's an infrastructure that we can that can solve the question. Sai Baba. Right. Or, you know, whatever. Like whatever religion helps people to sort of get through the day and do the right thing or be a better person. I think all those things are really valuable. I personally don't need a kind of systematic or big infrastructure to, I don't need to rely on that as a guiding force. But I think that the way that I show up in my writing is a, is, is a way of being accountable to my higher self, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes so sense. it's sort of like that space of empathy and that space of that space can feel transcendent or mystical in ways that is just an embodied experience that I don't know. It's like Borges. surprises me. Yeah. It's like heaven is a library. Like exactly. So it's that kind of space where there's difference without coercion. There's all these kinds of systems speaking to one another and in somewhere in that communication or network, something absolutely magical happens. And for me, that's enough. I don't think I need anything else. No, that's yeah. a, there, there's like a real depth charge to that. It's yeah. not like, that's not a, uh, a frivolous experience. <laughs> no. And it's not something I can just access at any moment. It's something that I really feel I've, that's part of the discipline for me of showing up is out of a kind of taking care of that space or that energetic, whatever. That part of your life. Right. What do you, how do you like speaking of showing up for the work? Like, how do you do the work? Like, are you seem, cause like you strike me like you're a writer's writer. Like you're somebody who's read more than most writers. There are a lot of writers who surprisingly aren't like that well read, but you're well read. And, um, you really, like you say, you believe in the magic. This is where you devote your, uh, most of your energy, right? Like you're, you're all mm -hmm. in. That's the way it feels to me. Yeah. Um, so does that mean you're like seven days a week up at dawn? Like, is it that kind of <laughs> discipline? It can be. And it definitely was when I was finishing the book for the last two and a half years. So I, yeah, I have a lot of energy that I need to consume now. And it's really nice to just walk in the sun. But yeah, there are moments where it requires that. Two and a half year moments? Yes, that was a long stretch. But I mean, this, this is, you know, it was a, this book, I felt annihilated in the process in some ways, and then reinvented myself as a result. But it's the kind of work that does is kind of requires that full, unconditional attention. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what is a day like when you're deep into a book? What does a day look like for you? I mean, I guess you're teaching too, but like, just walk me through it. Yeah, when I'm teaching, I'll I will get up and uh, make sure that I have the mornings for that, for writing. And sometimes I, I don't care about the page count. I'm not sort of as interested in my productivity as I am in showing up. Showing up. So I'll sort of say, okay, from 8 to 11, this is what I'm doing. Phone's off, you know, 
dogs have, under have, the desk. Do you have an internet problem or like, do you have like a Twitter addiction or anything like that? No, I'm just trying to figure out how Twitter works, honestly. Uh, so it's, it helps you. that I'm bad at Twitter, Yeah, but no, I mean, if I, if I'm in that space, nothing comes in, but it takes a while to get there. It's not, it's, again, it's not automatic. So I'm not in that space right now. I haven't been for the last few months, but I need a break and that's okay. And you know that. And I know that. And I'm, yeah, I'm sort of, I keep, I have my eye on it, but I'm also letting myself take a breather. That's smart. Yeah. Because you know, you'll burn yourself out. Oh, yeah, exactly. You exactly. drink a lot of caffeine? No, I've switched to green tea. Nothing. Look at you. It's austere. <laughs> it is not austere. Yeah. <laughs> no drugs, green tea, up at dawn, seven days a week. Uh, what about your, okay. So you, 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 I'm you, not up and down. <laughs> fingertip pushups. I'm telling you, this is an incredible regimen that she keeps up. You're uh, making me sound like a sergeant, <laughs> but you kind of have to be, I mean, this is, what was I, I was just looking, I was listening or it's like from, I was reading something, but it was talking about how joy and discipline go together. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think for, at first blush, it's like that often, you often wouldn't, wouldn't think that that would be the case, mm-hmm. but discipline's important. Like yeah. you can't get a book done without discipline. You can't get anything done. Like it's not, if you live in a haphazard way and you sort of just like work when you feel like it, or, you know, you don't, um, work on having like real focus and committed energy Nothing, nothing good's going to come from that. You're going to be... You think so? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I know some writers who just work in fits and bursts, and that works for them. Yeah, but those fits and bursts happen fairly regularly. It's not like they're doing it like once a quarter. You know, like they're doing right. it two or three days a week. Right, or maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I think, I just am hesitant because I think there's a, there is that sort of, story of the very disciplined writer and that's the one way and that's the true way and that's been true for me i just i'm cautious about perpetuating that because what if you're not like that what if that's not the way your brain works and yet you're remarkably intelligent and full of well listen if you're if you're getting pages written whether you do it seven days a week or two days a week that's the real bottom line. I think so. And I think it's sort of not everybody has to have the same experience of it in order to write. And for me, the discipline is connected to the writing, but it's also sort of connected to this deeper practice that that we were just talking about. And, you know, I'm it's not an austere life by any means, <laughs> although sometimes I'm, you know, I'm aware. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to have a drink tonight i have to have a clear head tomorrow and that's not always easy and it's not always fun but i have a lot of fun writing i laugh out loud you know zebra made me laugh a lot you're yeah you're funny <laughs> and like i mean like i you feel i mean and you're funny in person too but like there's a you, you're uh it's a dry humor you know like your delivery <laughs> you know you're not like making balloon animals and doing like shadow puppets or whatever like you uh it's understated mm Right? Yeah, I love to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Me too. Yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, you got to, right? Exactly. And it's hard in literature, I think. I mean, as, for, as a reader, it's hard for me to find people who can make me laugh aloud while I'm reading. That's yeah. a rare experience. Like, I can think a book is funny, but I didn't laugh out loud. If I laugh that's out, true. If that's... I laugh out loud while I'm reading, like something happened. Yeah, that's a really good distinction because I have that experience a lot too. 
Don Quixote, you might laugh out loud, or Enrique Villamatas, who's a Spanish writer who's translated in the States beautifully and published by New Directions, had some really, really laugh out loud Say his books. Name Enrique Villamatas. Okay. And one of his funnier books is uh, called Montano's Malady. It's really good. Okay. Yeah. You uh, might like it. Yeah. Um, what was I going to ask you? Oh, yeah. Do you have a favorite place? In the world? Yeah. Like, and especially places where you've lived. Like, I know you don't necessarily have a sense of like, I think identity is tricky because you feel like you're sort of mm. this like transnational human who doesn't necessarily have like uh, roots in the way that other people do. Yeah, no, people... I, I do have a, I have two places that feel really good for me. One is, um, Tustin, California, Tustin. <laughs> adjacent to Irvine. <laughs> no, one is actually on the Costa Brava mm. in, um, sort of the, not all of the beaches, but, uh, there's this one, one little beach called Aguas Blavas on the Costa Brava that. I just love it's I I spent just obsessive hours trying to describe this place when What's I was living there. I was Blavas. I was Blavas. What does that mean? It means blue waters. Oh. <laughs> it's really beautiful. It's just just this granite cliffs that are multicolored and like strips and ribbons of different colors. It's just gorgeous. I love being there. What is the you would know this, I bet. What? What is the Bolaño book that's set on the coast of Brava at some hotel? Did you ever read that oh, one? Oh, I think it's called um, The Skating Ring. Is it? I read it. So that, there, here we go again. Me not remembering what the hell I read, but I liked it. About it, the ice skater? And no, it was about a guy. Noir. It's about a writer who's there or a guy who's there with his family and he's staying in a beach hotel and it turns like sort of macabre. Like things go, and there's a dude with like a burns or something. Like I'm, you know, again, my, my reading memory is terrible. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think the skating ring is definitely set in Barcelona and on, on the coast, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's the same story. Yeah. I'll look into it. That's funny. Know. Cause it's like the, the one Bologna book I read is like the, like, I guess like minor Bologna. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I'd yeah. love to read that. Um, he's such a great writer, but what else? Oh, the other space is Florence. Florence. Yes. It's pretty. It's beautiful. And it's just the right size for me. You can, yeah, it's easy to get around. Yeah. I can kind of picture the whole thing in my mind and kind of access it. You know, there are all these different ways you can look at Florence. So you can kind of, the, the city is split by the river and you can kind of go up the hills and look at it and you get one perspective or you can go, you know, up the Duomo and look at the city and you get a completely different perspective. So it sort of feels like this strange chameleon-like object that's incredibly ornate, but also has a totally bloody history. I was so it's, say. Yeah. And you I, can feel that tension, like the beautiful and, and the sort of macabre kind of together there. It's, did you ever read The Monster of Florence, that book by Douglas oh, Preston? no, no. It was about that serial killer in the 70s. I think like, I want to say maybe Hannibal or something was, some movie was like derived of it. But uh, the serial killer, was he in Italy? Or Yeah, it was in Florence in the 70s. You would really? actually, yeah, you would actually probably. This is real? Yeah. I didn't know about like this Like it would all. be like in the 70s. And again, here we're, we're forcing me to paraphrase or remember books that I've read, which I'm terrible at. But um, there was this serial killer who would um, go up to cars. Or you know what? It was, maybe the Zodiac was similar to this. But he would, uh, I guess, teenagers in Florence, 
um, they would drive their cars up into the hills to like have sex or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this guy would, you know, stalk them and then shoot them in their cars. And what was his objective to teach yeah, teenagers mean, not to have sex yeah, in the Something hills? like that. Some sort of weird, like, you know. Oh, my husband grew up in Italy in the 70s. I'm going to ask him about yeah, this. Yeah, it's called The Monster of Florence. And then there was like a journalist. So Douglas Preston, I believe, wrote it. And then there was a journalist who was like on the beat for the local paper who becomes like a character in the book. But it's good. It's like true crime like yeah, book. Yeah. I bet you you would dig it. I uh, would. I actually like noir as a genre. Yeah. yeah. There's, I mean, speaking of like true crime and noir, like podcasts, you ever get into those where it's like the serialized shows about like murders or. Yeah, there was one I listened to a while back that kind of still haunts me about a, a doctor who had had a car accident. And then I think he developed this illness as a result and then murders his father and was he like not not of the right mind of his right mind like the, Ill, the yeah he wasn't of his right mind but i think that he had this really rare illness that develops later or that has to get triggered by some tra- i don't remember the details but the really sinister part of the story is that the doctor who came to replace him in this really small town in a clinic where he had very close relationships to all of his clients and patients who all loved him had the same name as the doctor who had murdered his father and had been sent off to jail. And then he becomes obsessed with investigating the story. I can't remember. Joe Smith. I mean, it had to have been something fairly. I mean, it was something pretty ordinary, but what are the chances? Yeah, that's weird. But the doctor who was then put in jail kept making claims incoherent, but claims that he was suffering from this one form of illness that he needed to be medicated for. And he represented himself in court and nobody would believe him. And they in fact tried to prove that he was coherent at times. So therefore he was lying in order to get away with certain things. And the doctor who took his place eventually just out of sheer empathy and identification with him started doing the research and interviewing and was able to prove that in fact he had this disease and then was able to get the medication to him in jail. But in the meantime, I think maybe 10 years had gone by. Jesus. And you can't make this shit up. That's no, crazy. it's incredible. How did you even I find wish this? I could. I was just driving home one day and it was on NPR. Huh. I wish I could remember, but I'm sure if you Google the story, it would just come up. Okay. Yeah. Well, I could keep talking with you. You're, Me too. Fun, you're fun to talk with, but I know you got to go. She's got, <laughs> she's booked for like the two more shows this afternoon. So I have to let Azarine go. Congratulations on the book. I'm glad we get to spotlight it. Um, you, uh, are very, uh, smart and have lived quite a life and it's just a pleasure to meet you and get to spend some time with you. Thank you. It was really great talking to you. All right, guys, there you have it. That's Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi. Her new novel is called Call Me Zebra. Out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is the official March pick of the TNB Book Club. Get your copy now. Call Me Zebra. Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi. You can find her online at azarine-vanderfleet.squarespace.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at A Vanderfleet. She's on Facebook. Azarine Vanderfleet Ulumi. Call Me Zebra. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support the program, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Got some new music playing right now. What do you think of that? I forgot I had this. 
Twiggy's in the room now. I had to get her. Couldn't leave her alone. I had to, like, get her into the garage. So now, if you hear dog noises, that's why. She's chewing on a blanket. Let me see if I can get her to say something. Hang on. Hey, Twiggy. Speak. Speak. Can you speak? Speak. Come on. Say something. Speak. Speak. There you go. As it turns out, if you, uh... If you just keep shouting speak at your dog, eventually they get so annoyed that they bark. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if I... I feel like the monologue was a little weak today. I don't know if I had any real point, but I, I feel like there was something in me on Sunday that got, uh, nervous that, you know, like when your car battery goes out and then your house power goes out, like, what does that mean cosmically? What's going on in my life that's causing that to happen? Is Mercury in retrograde? Is that what you say, by the way? Is it Mercury in retrograde or do you say is Mercury retrograde? Like is retrograde a thing that Mercury goes into or is retrograde an adjective describing Mercury? Do you know what I'm saying? Like what is retrograde? (laughs) I've never understood that, but I believe it. If somebody tells me that bad shit happens when Mercury is in retrograde, I believe it. I think that's what happened. I'm going to blame my house uh, power going out, my car battery dying on Mercury and on retrograde. I believe anything anybody tells me. It's a problem. Anything that uh, anybody says on Twitter, I take as gospel truth. I don't really believe that. But I'm open to the possibility. I think that's the problem. I don't really believe anything, but I'm open to so many possibilities. It's, it, it gets confusing. You live in this sort of uh, limbo. Is Mercury in retrograde really a thing? Like, do planetary forces really exert themselves on us? Affecting our moods and our destinies? I mean, it's as plausible as anything else. How the hell am I supposed to know? I feel like I'm, this, mu- this mu- uh, music is sort of... Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I feel like that John Cusack should be like walking in slow motion to this music in like 1991. Hey Twiggy. Twiggy. Come here. Speak. Twiggy, speak. Speak. <laughs>